This is the Adoptive Mom Podcast. Adoption may look different for each family, but we need solidarity from other crazy people who took this leap. And that is what we do here. We encourage, we build up, we share the wins and losses. We lean on each other and we get through this together. Thanks for joining us. Hello, and welcome to the Adoptive Mom Podcast. I am Alex Fitton, and I am back after a week away so that my amazing husband, Brian, could bring you guys the seasonal dads episode. And how much did y'all love hearing from Peter and Brian? I know I did. It was so much fun. I got to listen to it when you did after the episode launched. You can find me on Facebook at Alex Fitton and the Adoptive Mom Podcast and on Instagram at the Adoptive Mom. You are listening to episode 11 of season six, and that makes episode 89 overall. Today, we're going to chat with Natalie Vento, whose story is so chock full of adoption. It's crazy. She is an adoptee currently on her path to adoption, which has been riddled with lots of hurdles along the way. I can't wait for you guys to listen in. But first, I want to remind you guys that there is an easy and free way that you can support the show right now, and that is to leave a review on iTunes. And even if you don't use the Apple Podcast app to listen, you can still leave a review and it will in turn help other adoptive mamas who need these messages of solidarity and encouragement to find the show and join the tribe that you guys have created. One of my favorite recent reviews was from BJ Couple, who said, this is has been a lifesaver for my husband and I, as we have been in the process of opening our home. I It honestly was a good thing when we found this podcast, and it's one of the greatest resources we've found to fully prepare our home's hearts, family, and selves on this adoption journey. If nothing else, it's just so nice to not be alone in this journey. So thank you so much, BJ Couple. And I would love to to read your review as well, guys. So head to iTunes and get to reviewing. And now let's go talk to Natalie Vento. Welcome to the Adoptive Mom Podcast, and welcome so much, welcome to my guest, Natalie Vento. Um, do you go by Natalie or Nat? Because I've seen it both ways on the interwebs. Yeah, I go by Natalie. I just keep Nat because it's a little more incognito, um, oh. so people from previous jobs can't find me. That's fair. You know, every, I, every time I interview a social worker, I always ask them that, and then I'm like, oh, <laughs> right, they're a social worker. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, more the the people that we've worked with, not so much the people that we worked for. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Well, either way, welcome to the show. How's it going? It's pretty good. It's been an interesting week preparing for this interview. Um, I'm really excited to share my story. Yeah, no, we're excited to hear it. So before you share the whole story, just go ahead and tell us a yep. little bit about who you are and what you do. Um, so I'm Natalie. I am a recent clinical social worker, um, so I got licensed a couple months ago, which is really exciting. Um, yeah. I work at Children's Hospital in Pittsburgh. Um, I work in the pain team, um, and then I also follow other cases throughout the hospital, um, and it's a really interesting job and something that I've wanted to do since high school. Um, I've also had a lot of other jobs as a social worker, um, and I feel like those jobs were kind of the jobs that shaped 
um, who I am today. And those were the jobs that I, I took uh, because of how I grew up. Um, so for a little over five years, I was a caseworker for Child Protective Services. Here in Pennsylvania, it's called uh, Children and Youth Services. Um, I did about three years as a caseworker and about two and a half years as a supervisor. Um, I also worked in the foster care and adoption realm um, as a licensed um worker, meaning I would go into the homes and make sure that they not only were licensed initially, but maintained their license as long as they wanted to continue to foster. Um, and then I also worked for an agency that provided homes for adults who were intellectually disabled or autistic, um, who were just not capable at that time in their life to live on their own. Um, I would say that's the most out of the realm of what I thought I'd ever see myself doing job. Um, I'm not only a social worker professionally, um, but I kind of had traits of being a social worker from the time I was really little. Um, so I'm adopted. I have two adopted siblings and for 11 years of my life, um, in middle school, high school and college, I was a foster sister to 28 different newborn little babies. Um, and it was kind of through that job that I said, I'm going to work with kids. Um, I'm going to work with kids who either have special needs or I'm going to do child protective services. It was that job that really, um, or it was that um, phase of my life that really set me up for where I wanted to be. Um, so that's kind of who I am at this point in my life. Yeah. Well, and I'm, I'm always really interested in the people that, um, you know, you come from, you came from hard places and, there are so many people out there who are like, you know, I did my time. I really just want to live like a normal life. I want to not <laughs> see that stuff anymore. So I'm always so fascinated by the people that were like, no, like that's, you know, since I know this, I want to do this and I want to help people. Mm -hmm. And so I love hearing these stories. Yeah. Um, and you've already given us a few little teasers into your story. But we definitely want to yes. just hear the whole thing. So. Okay. <laughs> All right. So I just... I want to preface it by I'm going to try to use very minimal names mm -hmm. um, because as I dive into the story, you're going to kind of realize that um, especially the last couple of years um, didn't go as planned. Um, and I, as frustrated or as emotional as those years were, not only did they not go as planned for me, but I do have to say that they didn't go as planned for my family. Mm -hmm. They didn't go as planned for my ex-husband. They didn't go as planned for my now ex-in-laws. Um, and I just, out of respect for them, um, I you'll hear me reference ex, um, and I'm going to try really, really hard not to use his name. Um, and I actually didn't even use his last name um, when I provided you information for my introduction. I used my maiden name. Um, okay. So if if anybody is wondering why there's very few names, um, especially as I get deeper into my story, that's just why I just I did want to respect um, him as even though we're in the process of a divorce. Yeah, that's totally fair. Um, so I had said that I was adopted. Um, I was actually adopted from Romania and I was adopted at 16 months old. Um, my parents, uh, Phil and Lisa Vento, um, actually spent nine weeks in good old Romania, um, only like two years after the dictatorship fell. So it was a really weird um, air and dynamic. Um, and then just to throw in some other 
interesting tidbits. There was like eight inches of snow on the ground when they went. Um, and my mom lost a ton of weight because they eat really weird food there. <laughs> um, my parents prior to going to Romania to get me had tried every option under the sun to get pregnant. Um, they had explored every form of like IVF, every drug, every trial. Um, and it really just got to the point where my mom had said, we're done, but I'm not done being a mom. Um, they saw commercials on TV, uh, that basically the dictatorship fell and the orphanages were flooded with children. Please come get a child. Uh, wow. um, it's of like the shelter type, uh, commercials that we now see on TV. <laughs> so once they had made the decision that they were going to go to Romania, um, they kind of didn't have a clue what they were in for. Um, the orphanages were, were packed. Um, there were kids lined up in cribs um, to the point that there was almost not even room in between the cribs um, for somebody to get in between. Um, they had learned that most of the children spent hours upon end in these cribs. Um, minimal human contact, minimal interaction to develop um, any you know, physical or occupational type of, of skills. These, these kids didn't talk. They didn't walk. They minimally pulled themselves up. They didn't feed themselves. Um, my mom said that I presented like a really young toddler, um, in appearance because of my size. Um, but I, I didn't talk. I didn't walk and I was a year and a half old. Um, so you can imagine, uh, what they were, really in for and it was all of the kids so it wasn't just me um when they went to Romania they anticipated a three-year-old and a two-year-old is who they were going over for um better yet blonde hair blue-eyed little sibling group they got there and they didn't exist um my mom being the stubborn Italian that she is demanded that she was leaving with the child um didn't matter what the Romanian government said she was leaving with the child so they rolled me out I had blue pajamas on and a bow haircut. And one of the first things my mother said is, oh, look at that cute little baby boy. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I'm not a boy. Never was a boy. Um, They brought me back uh, and had a pretty interesting road ahead of them. Um, They had a lot of uh, milestones that we had to meet. Um, But they were, I think, overjoyed. I'm going to say they were overjoyed. (laughs) If you were interviewing them, they might have said something else. Um, A few short years later, my parents decided that uh, one child wasn't enough. um, And we ended up getting my little brother, who's five years younger than me. um, And he's actually a Christmas Eve baby. So we got a call a few days before Christmas. um, And the agency that we were working with at that time had said, we have a baby boy and a baby girl that are up for adoption, you know, are you guys interested? My mom looks over at me and says, um, do you want a brother or a sister? I tell my brother this all the time. I chose you. I didn't have to choose you, but you have to be nice to me because I picked you. Um, (laughs) and I had actually been saying up to, uh, the point of getting him, um, I want a brown baby brother. I was adamant that my brother was going to be brown, and he is. He's an African-American, Hispanic, young man, and in a couple of days, he will be turning 25, um, and that's really 
kind of an accomplishment um, <laughs> that my parents were able to keep him alive. So even though um, me and my brother fought all the time, um, and I, I don't know why my parents didn't stop at that, but they didn't. Um, when I was in seventh grade, my parents decided that they were going to start fostering. Um, so we signed up with an agency that primarily focused on only newborns and uh, young infants. Um, and during that time, uh, like I had said earlier, we had 28 different babies in our home. Some were adopted and some were reunified with their biological parents. Um, and my little sister was one of the babies that came to us during that time period. Um, and she was one of the ones that didn't come to us with a name, um, which was really cool. I loved when they came to us with no names. Um, because I got to name her, and when we adopted her, my parents even kept that name. Um, so her name is Mariah, and my brother's name is Aaron. Um, and it's it's a unique situation because when me and my brother and sister go out in public, um, people often think that me and my brother are a couple and that my sister is our child because there's 15 years between me and my sister. Um, oh my I'm five foot nothing. My brother is six foot four and my sister is five, three or five, four. Um, so we genuinely look like we could be a family. Um, so it's, <laughs> it's kind of a really cool dynamic. My sister is one of my best friends along with my mom. Aww. Um, and like I had said, it was shortly after my parents started fostering. Um, I'd probably say when I was in eighth grade that I knew for a fact that I was going into the social work field and I was going to work with kids. Um, and I, I'm grateful that uh, that wasn't a me thing, that was a God thing, because it has played out perfectly up to this point. Um, obviously, everybody has obstacles and jobs. I'm, I'm not void of those, um, but I love what I do. Um, so now I'm going to skip a couple years ahead um, and go more to like my adulthood. Um, so in April 2013, I graduated from the University of Pittsburgh with my Bachelor's of Arts in Social Work. Um, and also around that time, I met my husband. And we actually met on Match.com. Um, we were together for about eight and a half months before we got engaged. Um, and then we were married almost exactly two years later. Um, at that time... We genuinely believed um, that starting a family was going to be easy. It was going to be this wonderful, magical thing that you see in the movies and that you hear all the relationships um, talking about. And it, it's just perfect. Um, we talked about how many kids we were going to have. I mean, I think date number two, we were talking about this. Um, but things slowly changed. Um, adoption was something that I'd always brought up to him, um, pretty much from day one. It didn't matter, um, that he kind of focused on biological children. I always slid it in there and said, but we can have two or three kids and then adopt two or three, or we can have six and adopt eight. It doesn't matter, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I, I, he, he never said no in those times, um, However, he didn't seem excited. He didn't seem passionate about adoption. Um, the same excitement that I saw for having biological children was just void um, when I would try to really push the adoption. Um, he, 
I didn't see any significant changes that were really hard to deal with until January 2016 came around, um, which is less than a year after we were married. Um, so that first year of marriage, everybody says, is is horrible and, and hard to get through, and, and you're trying to be happy and, and live this magical um, fairy tale life. Um, but the first year is always hard because you're figuring out finances and how to live together and, and um, where are you going to live. Um, and on top of that, in our first year, um, I ended up going um, into surgery. It ended up being a lot more complicated than um, any of the doctors had anticipated. Um, and it was a surgery caused by multiple flares of my Crohn's disease. Um, and I was diagnosed with that in November 2014, so about a year before we were married. So we knew that I was going to have some health stuff. Um, I just I, I, nobody knew except for God alone how how complicated it was going to end up being. So my surgery um, was nine and a half hours long. I had two different surgeons who completed it. I had a gynecological surgeon and a gastrointestinal uh, surgeon. Um, and during that surgery, they took. Um, both of my fallopian tubes, my entire right ovary and part of my left ovary, as well as some other um, things such as fistulas and eight inches of my small intestine. Um, waking up from that surgery, I had two concerns. That's it. Can I have children ever again? And do I have a colostomy bag? Most people um, probably wouldn't care about a colostomy bag, but I, for whatever reason, that really freaked me out. It was about 7 8 o'clock at night on January 28, 2016, and um, all the doctors were in my room, my mom, my dad, and at the time, my husband, and the doctors looked at me and said, um, no, you don't have a colostomy, but no, you will never be able to have children. I was pretty sure my life was ending at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, I was 26 years old. I had just gotten married a couple months prior. Um, and I asked, why me? What did I do wrong? What didn't I do right? Why don't I get to start a family? Um, I was in the hospital for 11 days because I had an infection. Because <laughs> apparently having surgery and have to be in the hospital for four or five days wasn't enough. Um, emotionally dealing with what I was dealing with wasn't enough. Physically trying to heal wasn't enough. Um, and most of those 11 days I was crying. Um, I tried to hold it together for visitors, um, but there were some that I I just fell apart. Um, once I was discharged going home, I did try to focus on healing physically and ignoring the emotional hurt that I had felt, but it was not something that I could ignore. Um, the next eight weeks while I was home healing, um, I spent a lot of time kind of curled up on the couch, um, I called my mom, um, who obviously knew a lot about infertility, Mm -hmm. um, not for the same reasons, but we went through a lot of the same emotions. Um, she was like my rock. She was the, the person that I called and I'm like, mom, today I feel like crap and I don't know why. Um, I just kept begging God to like reveal something in this situation because if he didn't start revealing something, I didn't know how I was going to go on. Yeah. Um, it did take weeks and months for me to imagine um, that there could be something different, um, that maybe this was a, 
a plan. Um, but during that time, I had to return to work. And at the time, I was working for Child Protective Services. And so my role um, as a supervisor was to help the caseworkers make decisions on if children should remain in homes where they were being abused or neglected. Doesn't sound like a hard job, but uh, I really struggled with it because I, I got... I spent many days driving home saying, why did these parents get to have amazing kids? And I don't, you know, I would never abuse my kids. I would never neglect my children. And I I don't get kids. Um, What had I done wrong? What did I need to do differently to be able to have kids? Um, About eight or nine months after my surgery, I finally started to um, be more positive and just more focused, I guess. Um, And during that time, I decided I was going to pound the pavement and um, beg my husband to start fostering an adoption. To me, it felt like the perfect time. Physically, my body was healed. Um, You know, I I was not having Crohn's flare-ups anymore. Um, But he was not on board. Um, anytime I'd bring it up, his answers were indirect. Um, he would become harsher over the next couple of months. And he just, he was adamant that this was not what we were going to do. Um, it did start off kind of more gentle. He did say things like, well, we just need to fix up the house. Or we need to get the addition on first before we have kids. Um, he would say, we need to save more money. Um, or I just don't feel like this is, is the right time right now we'll get there um again with the kind of brushing things under the rug leaving me with hope but not really leaving me with much right um and then it did progress to things um like how can I love somebody else's child I can't love somebody else's child they come with too much risk um and as an adopted child um I found myself telling him like you do realize that if my parents said the same things you're saying, I could potentially be dead in an orphanage in Romania and you would have never met me. Thinking that would be what would get him, it didn't. Um, It didn't seem to matter what I said or how I was pleading. Um, He just never developed a heart for adoption. Um, And that's something that, that I learned through this that if you don't have the heart for it um you're often not just going to develop that um even if you don't know you have a heart for adoption it's there if you're going to be a successful adoptive parent um and I think that's the the most powerful thing that you can have as an adoptive parent and he just didn't um I was really angry um within the first year after my surgery um Because I I had a good job. He had a good job. I was healed. Why weren't we having kids? So in order to fill that void, I decided, let's go back to college. Um, You know, let's increase my uh, student loan debt. Let's make this bigger. Um, So I did get my master's of social work from Edinburgh University. um, And I graduated on August uh, 2018. Um, Also during that time um, of being in grad school, I felt a strong pull from God um, to reach out to a then 16-year-old girl 
um, who had been shuffled from foster to foster home. Um, my intention was to foster and potentially adopt her. Um, my ex-husband's uh, thoughts were, sure, you can visit with her. Sure, she can do day visits. Sure, we can be a support for her. And occasionally she can stay on the weekends. And I accepted that um, because I really didn't have any other option at the time. I was, I mean, we shared a house. And, and <laughs> as we all know, as adoptive parents or those going through adoption, um, you kind of both have to be on board because yeah. it requires a lot of both of your signatures. Um, although I may or may not have said a couple of times I'm going to forge his signature on things. <laughs> I never did that. Nothing illegal. Um, but that's kind of where I was. I, I adored this young girl. Um, I would have taken her in in a heartbeat. I would have made whatever work. Um, and my ex was just not on board. It was a constant tension between us. Um, I often felt that he was being selfish and he thought I was being impulsive and immature. Um, but she did do visits with us for almost a year. Um, and I do believe that the time that was spent together, um, did make a difference in her life. Um, she has recently turned 18 and is kind of doing her own thing. Um, I, I, she's somebody that if she ever needed help, I would, I would still be there for her if she allowed me. Sure. Um, once this young lady kind of stepped out of our lives, I decided that maybe it was time to focus on work and family and just kind of our lives. Um, you know, friends, um, building my career, spending more time with my family. Um, however, that was easier said than done. Um, at that point in my life, I felt like I was in a great place still, health-wise, emotionally, financially. Um, I felt that as a couple, we were ready to begin a family ch chapter. Um, I just needed my ex to get on board. Um, and he, he still was not. I, again, probably um, November of 2018, really pushed the adoption thing again. Um, I'm really stubborn. Um, so if you tell me no, I might set it off to the side, but, it, but it's going to come back, especially something like this. Um, and his responses were still, no, I'm not doing this. This is not something we're going to discuss. I can't do it, let alone pursue it. Um, so over the holiday season, December, 2018, um, I decided again, all right, God, you must be wanting me to focus on family and friends and just the holidays. Um, Please, you know, if that's what you want, make my heart um, passionate for that. I don't doubt that he obviously wanted me to be passionate about my family and my friends. Um, but I didn't feel him take that desire to have a child away. It increased, actually. Um, so, you know, we're approaching Christmas and I'm like, I want a baby. I want a baby to share the holidays with. I want a, a kid. I don't know. Send me a 17-year-old. At this point, I would take a 17-year-old. You know, just send me a child so that I can have an amazing holiday. Um, I, but I think I knew at that point... Um, that unless something radical changed, which it hadn't up to that point, um, if something radical didn't change, I wasn't going to get a child, not in the current situation that I was in. Um, this was probably another chapter in my life where I really 
relied on my mom. Obviously, the last couple of years I was relying on her, but for whatever reason, this that Christmas, um, almost a year ago, I it, I just broke down a lot in December, a lot of crying. Um, I also had a handful of friends that were amazing supports for me. Um, something that I I can't even thank them enough. I don't think I'll ever be able to thank them enough. Um, they heard more tears. They, they saw me a blubbering mess. They got phone calls at weird hours, um, sometimes multiple times a day. Um, and two of them that I think I'm going to mention, um, because they deserve all the thanks in the world, um, is my best friend, Nicole and my best friend, Kelly. And I actually, um, live in Nicole's guest house. Um, so talk about a good friend. Um, and I'll touch on that a little bit more in a few minutes. Um, but I can't thank these two ladies enough. Um, Nicole has two biological children of her own, um, but is also a social worker. Kelly, um, has an associate's degree in psychology, um, and has two biological children, two adopted children, and she has two fosters right now. Um, she is like my spirit animal, um, because I don't know how in God's green earth she does it. Um, her two biological children are teenagers, um, so that alone needs prayer. And then the other children are between the ages of two and eight, um, so they're busy. Yeah. They all need her attention, like, this minute. Um, and she just does it wonderfully. And still makes time for me to call her. Um, so... <laughs> They've talked me through some really sad and frustrating times, um, and they've never let me give up on my desire for a family and adoption, even when I'm like, you know what? God must not want it. Um, maybe this desire that I'm feeling is me. I, I, maybe I'm the one pushing for it, and it's not a God thing. Um, and they have kept me on track that this kind of desire and this kind of passion it has to be a God thing. Um, after the holidays that year in 2018, I really started questioning what to do or how to proceed, um, in order to get my ex to change his mind. Um, and, and what role was I supposed to play in this life? Um, it was also during the month of January, 2019, where I was approached by a local medical professional, um, about a young lady who was currently pregnant, um, and wanted to place her baby for adoption. I don't think I've ever, uh, said yes to something so fast that I probably should have stopped and thought about. Um, but within minutes I was like, yes, that's my baby. Yes. We'll pursue it. Um, meanwhile, I was alone when I was approached about this, so I probably should have brought other people into it. Um, but I said, yes. Um, with this news, I was so hopeful. I thought, this is a God thing. Like, nobody gets approached about an adoption without an agency. I mean, we didn't have our home study. We weren't connected to an agency. It, it, it was a God thing. I was like, wow, God, you're really working. Like, this is what I have been waiting for. Um, but then I also had a pit in my stomach because... As much as I thought it was a God thing and as excited I was about a baby, I then realized, crap, I have to go home and talk to my husband. I have to have this conversation with him and he has to agree. Um, it took me three days to muster up the courage to bring it up to him and tell him. 
Um, his reaction was just as I expected. Um, he wasn't open to talking about it, and he wasn't on board. Um, we spent four days straight for hours on end arguing about it. Um, the baby was supposed to be born March 2019, um, and we found out two days into our arguing um, that it was actually supposed to be a boy. Um, it was the date, the due date was too soon for my ex. Um, and he didn't seem excited about the possibility of a son. Um, nothing really seemed to catch his attention. Um, nothing seemed to sway him even the slightest. Um, I became even more frustrated and angry at God for presenting this situation to me, but not making it possible. Um, again, a lot of those why questions, why did you allow this to happen, God? Why would you put this in my lap? Why would you let this medical professional even think of me? Why me? Um, just to take it away from me. What was I supposed to do with this? Um, and why couldn't you just change my ex's heart? That's all you had to do, God. You just had to change his heart. I mean, that shouldn't be that big of a task for you. I, I, I had every conversation under the sun with him um, over the next couple of weeks. Um, before those four days were up, um, I started to really f question my marriage. Um in those four days, I heard a lot of how can I love somebody else's child and it's too much of a risk. Um, and it was just really hurtful to hear those words. And as much as I wanted God to change his heart because I did want to raise children with him, there was another part of me that was like, you know what, Natalie, you're done. You can't do this anymore. You've been doing this for three years. Um, but before I did decide to leave, I prayed a lot. I prayed a ton. I said, God, you have to to make this clear for me. Um, my heart and head is saying leave. My heart and head is saying leave today, file for divorce tomorrow. Um, but I know that divorce isn't what you want for us. Um, but then God, I'm just confused. I want children. You've made me want children. I'm presented with a child and he doesn't want it. Make this clear for me. Um, I also didn't know where I was going to live. Um, I didn't know where I was going to work. Um, and those were also parts of my prayers. Like, God, if this is, if this is what you want, um, find me a house. <laughs> you know, realtor God, find me a house and um, get me a job. So my best friend, Nicole, um, had moved a couple years prior into a property um, with an extra house on it, um, full kitchen, dining room, living room, and a bedroom. Um, and it just, through our conversations, she kind of just was like, Natalie, I, I need to see you happy. I need to see you full of life. I need to see you pursuing your dreams and your passions. And I just want to see you be you. I feel like you haven't been you the last couple of months, maybe even a couple of years. Um, if you need an out, that house is yours. Um, the house that I live on is like a rock throw from her house. The only <laughs> thing that separates our houses is, is a, an in-ground pool, 
which means that I am an active part of her life and not just her life, but her family's life. I'm a part of her daughter's life and her son's life and her husband's life on top of hers. Um, and that's a big change. I, I don't know if I would be able to have somebody move in, um, in the same type of situation, but I am eternally grateful. Um, also I have, um, I now have six animals, but I was only coming with three. But no landlord is going to touch me with three animals. Not even a bat of an eyelash did she just move me in. Um, and I've been here since April 9th. Um, I had told my husband on April 7th, um, which was a Sunday. I said, I, I, I think I'm done. I have asked you to go to counseling. I've asked you to make other lifestyle changes. I've asked you to be open to adoption, and it's just not working. We're not in the right place to be married. Um, you know, if you want to pursue counseling, I'm open to that, but I think I need to move out at least. Um, he worked away from home Monday through Thursday or Monday through Friday, depending on the job. Um, so that was on a Sunday. He left Monday morning, and then on Tuesday I was out of the house. Um, it hasn't been easy, um, although I do think I handle the situation pretty well. Um, I think I mentally prepared a lot Um over the two months that I was praying to God. Um, I still had a lot of questions, but I was super optimistic and I'm super grateful for my support system. Um, I know that someday soon I'm going to adopt. Um, I don't know if I'll be a single mom or if I'll get married again. Um, if you ask my mom, we're going to buy a house that she can also live in and she's going to help me take care of the kids. I haven't agreed to that yet, um, but that's something that I think she would like welcome in a heartbeat. Um, but what I do know is that I did make the right decision in ending my marriage um, and that God has this whole situation figured out. Um, and actually on November 20th, so less than a month ago, I turned 30. Um, this was probably the most overwhelming and scary birthday of my life. Um, my life is not where I expected it. Um, I don't have my perfect family. Um, I'm not happily married and I feel pretty uncertain about a lot of things. Um, but I'm beginning to accept that what I thought my life would look like, uh, is not the plan that God had. Um, and I'm also learned that my life doesn't have to look like what society expects for 30 and I don't have to fit into any cookie-cutter mold. Um, I'm going to continue to pursue adoption. I'm still going to um, reach out to my network of people, even though I'm not a, yet an adopted mother. Um, but I will be a mom someday. Um, and hopefully, you know, it'll be in the next five years. But I've also learned that I don't get to plan that stuff even though I'm a perfectionist and a control freak. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And I mean, that's, that's so much, first of all. So and, yes. and it's honestly, it's like two, two different stories. And so I want to ask you first yes. about your personal adoption story. And uh, man, I mean, can you describe what was going on in, in Romania at the time of your adoption? What, what, you know, okay. what was, 
what was the majority of the reasons that children were flooding orphanages? You know, what was the unrest going on? Okay, so um, World War II really affected Romania, even though it doesn't appear that they were super active in the actual warfare. Um, but it was one place where a lot of people were flooding to. Um, the biggest population that flooded there was the Roma Gypsy population, which is actually what I am. Um, I'm Roma Gypsy descent, um, which basically just is a fancy way of saying kind of like a mutt. Um, <laughs> and so you have all of these people coming into this country. Um, so overpopulation. It is ran by a dictator. Um, so very minimal freedoms. Um, and then the rest of the world around you is kind of coming out of World War II. They're redeveloping, they're improving their government, they're improving their society. Um, and Romania just didn't seem able to do that. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't until the year of 1989 when things really started to break apart. Um, there was a lot, to my understanding, there was a lot of like revolts. Um, the citizens really pushed for the dictatorship to fall. Um, and they actually made it happen. They publicly shot the dictator in the square in 1989. I, I, I think it was one month after I was born, roughly. Um, and my adopted dad, Phil, says that uh, the dictator had heard that this stubborn bull child was born <laughs> and he didn't want to put up with me. So he just willingly gave himself up and said, I, I, I'm good. You can have me. Um, I am very stubborn, so I can't deny that, but I doubt that's the reason the dictator um, fell. But there's still um, a chance, But when right? he fell, uh, the government kind of fell apart. Yeah. Um, you have nobody running this country. Um, you have very minimal resources to maintain the people that are residing there. It was always seemed to be a poor country, um, but without any guidance or government really in place, it, it was destroying the economy. Um, and the way that they saw how to handle that, or at least to take some burden off, was to open their borders to adoption. Um, and who else do you reach out to but uh, America, because we're rich and we're full of resources. Um, so I, I want to say about a, a nine months, to six to nine months before my parents went over is when those commercials really started flooding the TV. So late 1990. Mm -hmm. um, and it was just a call to come over and get a baby. It, it, my mom said it was, it was very unusual. Um, like I said, they thought they were going over for a sibling group. The government promised parents, children that never truly existed mm -hmm. or were already adopted or had disappeared. Um, nobody really knew. Um, so the borders open, people started flooding there were actually kids that they wanted to adopt out that parents couldn't even be located. So rights could never be terminated. Um, my parents had actually fell in love with another little girl whose crib was near mine. 
Um, and they couldn't locate her parents, so my parents could not adopt her as well. Um, but they would have taken her in a heartbeat. Um, I forget what her birth name was, um, but I think it was similar to mine, which was Daniela. Um, it was just kind of like a mass chaos of, of people coming over, some through agencies, some through just hopping on a plane wow. and ending up in Romania. Um, my dad uh, bribed um, attorneys, clerks, judges, all kinds of government people um, to make my adoption happen with pantyhose, typewriter paper, food. Um, I mean, you name it. If it was something of luxury... Um, and he could get his hands on it, he would use it as a bribe. Wow. Um, so the reality is that there, I, I might be a little bit illegal. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously I'm here now. Nobody's going to deport me, but it, it's kind of crazy to think that like the government was so dysfunctional that bribery was normal. Yeah. Um, there was a whole group of children that came over um, when my parents did the adoption, and it sounds like that was normal in that whole group, all the parents that adopted, that's just what they did to get their children. Yeah. Well, and I want to talk about your resilience a little bit, because even, I mean, there's so many, there's so many, um, I don't know, milestones in your story where you could have fallen apart, um, that could have, that could have undone you, even just the knowledge that you weren't you know, quote, first choice or whatever, like little things like that, that would undo people and, and, um, you know, create attachment disorders or something like that. You've been able to overcome those things. Um, and what an incredible testimony, just that that's something that you have been stubborn enough, as you put it, to say, no, you know, this is not how my <laughs> yes. life is going to go. Um, would you say that you're um, seeking after adoption and you're seeking after uh, social work and everything? Do you think that that's a part of your healing process or do you think that is because you are healed? Uh, I've actually never really thought of it. Um, I would say it's both. Um, I think adoption is something that you constantly learn about. Um, being adopted, you have to learn a lot about yourself. Um, so, so I'm not healed perfectly. Um, I, I, I would say I do social work because I want to bring resources and love and empathy and caring to people who don't have it. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that I learn a lot and I heal myself with, with almost every case that I deal with. Um, I, I, I've learned so much about myself with, with a lot of the jobs that I've held. Um, so I th think it's both. I really, I think it's both because I, I have a lot to still learn about myself. Um, I know nothing about my biological family. So nine times out of 10, I'm 100% comfortable with that. Um, I have jokingly said that, um, my, birth father is probably a Turkish prince. He is looking for me. Someday he'll find me and pay off all my student loan debt and buy me a lot of horses. Um, <laughs> but there are days where I sit back and I'm like, 
I have a crap ton of health issues and I don't know who to blame these on. Um, and I don't know what could come in the future. And I think that's scary. Um, but then I go to work every day and I work at a children's hospital and I'm faced with kids who walk in and, and yesterday they were perfectly healthy and today they have a cancer diagnosis. So at least I don't have cancer. At least right now I am managing my health stuff. Man. And I mean, that's, oh, that's just so much. And I, I know I've said it like three times, but I'm just so impressed with your resiliency. I'm so impressed with your positivity in life. Um, given the, the really difficult hand that you've been dealt and we look at our kids, you know, as adoptive moms. And I think that, you know, I interviewed, um, Brandy Shioyama and she said that, uh, everyone always tells her like, why can't you be the poster child for all the like teen adoptions or all the just kids from hard places? And I think it's so hard because we all want to know, like, how do we put that resiliency in, in our kids? How do we give them this positive outlook on life? And I think that you just kind of radiate that, which is really cool. Um, because that doesn't <laughs> happen you. very often. Um, I do. So I, I love your story. I, I love it. Not because it's like, really fun and positive, but just because of, like I said, just because of, of you and the person that you've become because of your story. So I do want to get into these closing questions. Is that okay with you? Okay. Yep. Awesome. Okay. What do you wish that someone had told you at the beginning of all of this? So this was probably the absolute hardest question for me to answer because I, I, I think of beginning as two different things. Um, so I think of beginning as like, eight, nine, ten-year-old kid when you start to understand life a little bit. Um, and then I also think of beginning as, you know, January 29th, 2016. Um, so wow. I'll answer that in two parts. Eight or nine, um, if somebody would have told me that um, this is where I'd be in life, um, I would ask them, how how do we overcome things? So I, I wish I would have just known, like, better, how do you over overcome and deal with complete unknowns because um, my go-to is crying um, and that's not the best adjusted way to deal with it um, so what would I have known how did how to just take these crazy unknowns um, and I think that also plays into January 29th 2018 when I woke or 2016 when I woke up from surgery um, how do you handle these unknowns how do you, how do you overcome things without a crystal ball or an eight ball or without God sending you an email and saying this is what it's going to look like? Uh, you also have goals for remembering dates. I'll just say that <laughs> you are like date memory goals. Um, but yeah, that's I mean those are really those are really. I don't know, like deep points. I think that a lot of us would yeah. look back and say like, oh, I wish that somebody had told me how hard it's going to be or whatever. But like, I think that it's, <laughs> I think that it's really cool the way that like, you know yourself and you know what you would have needed to hear, you know? Yeah. So that's cool. So yeah. uh, what do you wish you had done differently? So this one is hard to answer and I actually didn't even type it out because I wasn't sure if I was going to go this route. Um, I probably would have spent more time before getting engaged or married, not just talking about wanting to have kids or talking about wanting to adopt, 
I would have made it a point to kind of pin that down um, instead of letting him brush over it or um, kind of pat me on the back by saying, well, let's start with biological children and see how we feel. Um, I, I would have really gotten to know him in a way where the, we wouldn't have had as many obstacles mm-hmm. post my surgery. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Um, so I know you've already talked about your two closest friends and just the people that were your support system. But yeah. if you had like one specific way that was just your favorite way that you felt supported during, I'll, I'll say during your divorce or during your surgery, just some of those really hard times. Um, okay. So I'm going to go, I'm going to say, I'm going to say two things. Cause both of those women, um, did something really different for me kind of. Um, so Nicole, uh, never turned me down when I asked to come over to her house. Um, you know, before I'd get there, there was a pot of coffee on already. Um, the lights on her back porch were turned on so we could sit under twinkle lights and I never felt like I had to leave at a certain time. Mm. Um, and then Kelly, um, which sometimes I, I, I would have to sit in her driveway before doing this. Um, she'd invite me over to her crazy house all the time. So I would be deep inside myself, really feeling down, and she'd just invite me over. And there'd be like three, four, seven kids running around the house. <laughs> um, her teenagers probably had two or three friends over each. And we would just hang out in the chaos, in the crazy and there were times where I was like, well, I want to, like, I would be in my head and I'd, I'd be like, well, I want a kid so that I can bring it over. Um, but then she would just pull me back out of that place. Um, and her daughter, um, her middle daughter, I was actually involved in her CYS case. Um, so actually for the first probably four years of our friendship, um, her daughter referred to me as caseworker Natalie, um, which is like, probably three years after I stopped working at CYS, um, <laughs> Children and Youth Services. So, And she'd introduce me to complete strangers as caseworker Natalie. Um, but just being in those two different environments with those two different friends, um, they just knew what I needed in those moments. Yeah. I love that. Just having that insight. Um, and I know we've talked about this a lot on the podcast of, you know, what does that look like to care for someone to be a support system? But I think that so much of it is knowing your friend's specific needs, um, yeah. knowing what's going to help them. And so I think that's really cool that they fulfilled two different needs for you. Um, so the next question I always ask is what is the worst way you felt supported or the, the way that, you know, was just a miss for you? Um, I can't really think of anybody specifically, but people who constantly told me that my ex would come around. Mm. Those are great words to hear. And there is a time and place for them. But when you're having the conversation about adoption every couple of weeks or every couple of months and every single time you're hearing, no, it's not going to happen in different terms. um, I don't want to hear that he's going to come around. I just want you to let me say how overwhelmed or frustrated I am or how scared I am that I'm never going to have a family. Don't tell me he's going to come around because you don't know that. Um, And that 
sometimes felt like an empty promise. You can't make that decision. You don't know what the future holds. Please don't make me feel like I'm just not thinking of something. Mm. Man, I think that that's so, I mean, that's such good advice because it is hard, you know, <laughs> when, when you're talking to someone and you just want to make them feel better in the moment. Um, right. And, that, and again, that's what we talk about all the time about being a support system. Is sometimes you just have to sit in the hard stuff. And that's really hard. Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So if you could sum it all up into one piece of advice or encouragement for, I would say, adoptive moms in the trenches, but also people who are in your situation, you know, people who are in that waiting period. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Um, If this is something that you're passionate about, if adoption is something that your heart yearns for, don't give up. Um, whether you're dealing with a spouse that doesn't want it, um, whether you're a single young lady or young man and you don't think you'll ever find somebody who wants to adopt with you, um, whether you're waiting for your child or whether you just fought with your adopted child, don't ever give up. This is not an easy path that you chose, um, It's not the traditional path. It's becoming more popular, but it's not traditional. And there's a lot of people in society that are still going to look at you like you're crazy. It's okay. You are. Um, But never cease to follow that passion. Um, Because there are too many kids out there that need you. um, And you are one of a kind. Um, There aren't a thousand of us out there that want to adopt. Um, but there are 5,000 kids that need adopted. So just don't ever give up. Um, pray, find your support group, and just never cease to follow that dream. Mm, I love it. I'm just like, <laughs> I love it. Letting all that wash over me. Um, <laughs> you seriously are. It's like, I mean, I know I've said it in this. I, I, I feel like I'm repeating myself so much, but I'm just amazed at just, I don't know, like the ball of positivity that you are given all of your circumstances and everything you've been through. And I think that, I don't know, I can't imagine a better person to be pouring into these, these kids that you work with and, uh, your friend's kids that are so blessed to have you around. So I am super grateful to have you on the show and to be able to share your story, um, and just your encouragement and, uh, for those of you who are not Patreon supporters, Natalie and I are about to go have a really fun conversation uh, where I'm going to get to ask her questions that she does not know that what I'm going to ask her yet. Uh, so if you want to listen to those, head to theadoptivemom.com slash community and figure out how you can be a part of that. But for now, Natalie, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Adoptive Mom Podcast. I hope you found encouragement here. I need you to know that you are enough and you're doing a great job. We are all in this together and I am over here cheering you on. Don't forget to check out show notes for this episode and other resources at theadoptivemompodcast.com. Thanks for joining us.